Well, good morning. It's so good to be here with you this morning. If you don't know me, uh, my name is Dylan. And if today does not go well, come back next week because <laughs> I'm not the one who usually does this part. Uh, but so, so yeah, uh, my name is Dylan, and this morning we're going to continue our study through the book of Mark. Um, we're going to be in Mark chapter 8 today. And uh, so just to get started, what I love to do is just go straight to the scripture and let God's word stand on its own and then see how that hits us. And then, so we're going to read a portion of Mark 8, and then we'll, we'll come back and pull it apart a little bit and look at some different things about it. Um, so Mark 8, uh, if you have your Bible, we're going to start in verse 27. And I would encourage you, if, if you have a Bible, to bring it with you and read along with us. And make sure, even though we have the verses up on the screen, make sure we're telling you the right stuff. Like, read it for yourself and make sure that, yeah, and that God's word is being preached wisely and that it hits your heart as you read along. Uh, so Mark 8, starting in verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." So we get to the end of the chapter there. This passage is repeated in two of the other Gospels. It's repeated in Matthew and Luke. Um, very similar. They give us a little bit of extra context that sometimes we can pull some things from. Um, but so this section was obviously very impactful and important to the disciples. It's recorded three times in four of the Gospels. And so let's start back out just at the top of this uh, portion of Scripture, looking at Peter confessing that Jesus is the Christ. Peter confessing that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah is huge. So far in Mark, we're halfway through now, we're at chapter 8, and no one in Mark so far has really come to this conclusion. Earlier in Mark, uh, in chapter 3, Jesus' own family say that he's crazy. The religious leaders claim that Jesus is just possessed by Satan. And then back in chapter 6, uh, he's preaching in his hometown, and all the people are like, isn't this guy the carpenter? What's wrong with him? And so everyone just kind of discounts who he is. But at this halfway point, so far in Mark, we've seen Jesus do so many miracles, do so many things, proving that he's the Messiah. 
And then in the beginning of chapter 8, which we're not going to take the time to go through the whole chapter this morning, Jesus is performing miracles. He's feeding the 4,000 from seven loaves of bread and a few fish. And then after he does that miracle, they get, they get in the boat and go to the other side of the sea. And when they get there, the Pharisees demand a specific sign. And Jesus says, no, I'm not going to give that to you. And so they get back in the boat and sail back to the other side. And as they're sailing away, there's, there's an exchange that starts in verse 14 of chapter 8. And so now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. So everyone knows when the food gets short, tempers start to get short too. And so Jesus is trying to tell his disciples to watch out for the Pharisees, watch out for their, their toxicity, their hypocrisy. And he says to them, uh, he cautioned them saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And so because Jesus' metaphor reminded them that they were hungry, they start talking to each other and kind of ignoring what Jesus is saying. Like, what are we going to do? We're in the boat and we only have one loaf of bread. And so Jesus gets a little bit touchy with them. He starts saying, don't you remember when I fed the 5,000? Don't you remember when I fed the 4,000? And at the end, there was abundance left over. Don't you trust that I'm able to provide? Don't you understand the things that I've been doing? And so they get back to land. Jesus heals a blind man. And then we walk into the story where we started this morning. And so at some point between this discussion that Jesus had in the boat with his disciples... And between him posing the question, who do you say that I am? Something has finally clicked with the disciples. God has finally revealed to them and to Peter that this is the Son of God. Jesus is God in flesh. And so now that the disciples finally understand that Jesus is the Messiah, he can finally begin to teach them what the Messiah is really here to do. And that's actually why I believe that Jesus did not want them to start going around telling everyone about him. There, there may have been a number of reasons, but I believe a large reason was because of the expectations that the general population had of the Messiah. People, including the disciples, had this picture in their mind of what the, uh, what the Messiah would be like. And in their minds, if the disciples started going around and sharing with people that the Messiah is here and what they believed about the Messiah, then they would have been spreading a false message. And so I want to come back to that portion of Scripture in a little bit, but for now we're going to jump ahead and uh, look into what Jesus says to the crowds, uh, starting in verse 34. And so it says, In calling to the crowd, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. How does that verse hit you? That might not be the first verse that you share with a close friend that you're trying to introduce to Jesus. It's probably not on as many coffee mugs or t-shirts as a lot of other verses. At first glance, this verse isn't super appealing. If we look at it, deny myself. I have to take up my cross? That sounds like it might be heavy. So, does anyone have an idea of what the most commonly quoted verse in Scripture might be? Just go ahead and shout it out if you have an idea. John 3.16 is what I was looking for. 
And so as, as I was digging through, uh, I found that might not actually be the most quoted verse in Scripture, but I think we can agree that it's probably up there. So John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is a great verse, a beautiful verse, a powerful verse, one that we can show to people and bring them comfort. But this verse is where everything begins. Believing in Jesus and the sacrifice that he made for you is huge. And is it any wonder that this verse is so popular? If we look back through that verse, in one verse, it stated that God loves you, that Jesus died for you, and that you can have eternal life through him. Just a win-win-win. And if you believe in Jesus, or if you're open to believing in Jesus, if you're, not, if you're not completely against him, then there's not a whole lot that's offensive in this verse. It's easy to point to for anyone and say, see, you just believe. Just believe. That's it. But Jesus doesn't call us to just believe. And in fact, for all of his disciples, there was a different phrase that he used when he called them. For everyone that he called, he said to them, follow me. And so believing is necessary, but that's the beginning. We believe and then we follow. And so John 3.16 focuses on that believing and Mark 8.34 focuses on the following. And in this passage, Jesus lays out a challenge for what it looks like to follow him. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Our culture today lives in stark contrast to this call. And we're not immune to that. Often we, we can be saturated by what's going on in our culture and we can be, um, we can be drawn to that. We want immediate and full satisfaction, and we want it now. We want two-day shipping or less. We want it right now. And we can be so entitled and selfish. Uh, one example of how entitled and selfish our culture can be, does anyone know the best time of year to purchase a TV? Other, other than Black Friday. Uh, the... A former worker from Best Buy said that the best time to purchase a TV is probably the week after the Super Bowl. That's because many people will go and buy a big fancy TV to watch the game on and then return it later that week. So then you can go get a deal on an open box TV that's basically brand new. So if you need a tip on how to find a TV, there's that. But, but how entitled are we as a culture how entitled are we that we would be okay with that? That we think it's fine to just take what we want and then bring it back and get the money back. Now, if you've done that, I'm not here to convict you this morning. That's, that's God's job. I'm just bringing the word and let the Holy Spirit do with it what he wants. But how are we at denying ourselves? We might not go to Best Buy and get a TV for two days and then bring it back. But there might be other places in our lives where we, we struggle to deny ourselves. And it's a huge struggle, especially if we feel like we've deserved this. I earned this. I work hard. I should get this. And so what did Jesus even mean by deny yourself? 
as I was kind of looking about at what this could mean, I found a biblical definition of self-denial, which is this. Self-denial is the willingness to, willingness to deny oneself possessions or status in order to grow in holiness and commitment to God. Self-denial for the Christian means renouncing yourself, renouncing yourself as the center of existence, which is against our natural human inclination, and recognizing Jesus as the one who's the true center. And I believe the best way to understand the things that Jesus says in Scripture is to look at how he lived them out. So I want to look at how did Jesus deny himself? So Jesus, who existed before the beginning, existed in perfect harmony with his Father, with the Spirit, lived in power. He stepped out of heaven. Out of living in perfection and living in power, he's giving up a life that we probably can't even comprehend, how perfect and how awesome it is. He steps down from his throne. How many kings that you know willingly leave their throne to become a servant? He left his throne to be born as a helpless child to a woman who likely had no idea how to raise a child. He grew up and he lived in this imperfect world at a time when life was anything but easy. Just even to get water, you have to carry something heavy somewhere and then carry it back. And he lived this life perfectly, without sin, even though he was tempted in every way that we were. After he grew up, he traveled around, essentially homeless, didn't give himself the comfort of even having a regular bed to sleep in. And he proclaimed the truth for our benefit, which caused him to be hated by all the religious leaders. He lay, and then he laid his life down. He allowed himself to be beaten and nailed to a cross, taking the punishment of God's wrath towards sin on our behalf. Paul in Philippians puts it this way, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And so while we're on the subject of the cross, we can jump to that next portion of the challenge. Deny yourself and take up your cross. Now today, we kind of see the cross through eyes, I feel, that are a little bit jaded. Today, we have jewelry. You might have a tattoo. Uh, you probably have a t-shirt or a bumper sticker, or it's on your Bible, depicting the cross. And today, we boldly display that symbol because it symbolizes the sacrifice of Jesus. It symbolizes forgiveness and love. It symbolizes the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. And we, we even have songs, songs such as The Wonderful Cross, because we have a Savior who loves us enough that he bore all of our sin and shame so that we could live forever with him. But if you rewind a couple thousand years, the cross was not a beautiful sign 
it wasn't a wonderful sign. The cross was ugly. It was offensive and it was horrendous. It was a symbol of nothing but death and shame. So back in this time, when that was the case, what did Jesus mean by take up your cross? Often, we have a saying nowadays that we often relate this subject to suffering through certain circumstances in our lives. If we have an unhealthy relationship, if we have a thankless job, um, or even if we have a physical disease, whenever we're, we're struggling with something, we have a tendency to say, I guess that's just my cross to bear. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. At this point in time, the cross was the most painful, most humiliating, most brutal way that humans could come up with to kill someone. And nobody that watched Jesus carry his cross, watched him drag his cross to where he would be crucified, would have been thinking that it was a symbol of a burden to carry. There was no one watching that would have said, yeah, that just reminds me of my day-to-day at work every day. The cross wasn't just a burden, even though our burdens can be very heavy. But what the cross did was the cross spelled death. So Jesus wasn't calling us to just carry a burden. And I wish I could say that there was a lighter, easier meaning to it, but in fact, the implications are much more than that. Jesus was calling us to be willing to die in order to follow him. That's why he continued on to say in verse 35, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? If you want the life that you desire here on earth, there's probably a way that you can get it. You can probably figure it out. Everyone trying to live the American dream or get rich quick, you can probably find a way to do a lot of those things. But it won't be enough. Do you want to trade your soul for that here on earth? Or would you be willing to trade your life and your desires to have your soul follow Jesus? Taking up the cross is denying yourself plus. It's a step above that first call. It's a call for us to have absolute surrender to Jesus. It's dying to ourselves. Jesus calls us to give up anything and everything that might get in the way of us pursuing him. He wants us to be willing to give up anything that could get in the way, even including our very life, the desires that we have for our life, and when it comes down to it, even our physical life here on earth. The life that we are to live after making this decision is not in pursuit of our own desires, the decision to follow Christ. It's not in pursuit of our own desires. It's in pursuit of Him. Paul said in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. 
This call might seem really hard, but Jesus doesn't call us to do anything that he's not willing to do himself. He gave himself up for us, and he asks us to give up ourselves in the pursuit of him. And so, are we willing to live life this way? Are we willing to follow in this way with this reckless abandon? It might seem that a proposal to live this way would take someone highly specialized with a lot of training to be able to accept it, with a lot of self-discipline. And many of those that heard Jesus make this challenge back a couple thousand years ago, they would decide not to follow him because it was too hard. They were good to follow the Messiah, but it had to be the picture of the Messiah that they had in their mind. And it had to be on their terms. They didn't want to give up what they had. They wanted more and they wanted better. And they wanted it right now. So we've changed a lot since back then. <laughs> and so I said we come back to this section uh, with Peter because we get a glimpse into the mindset of the people through Peter in this section. And so back in verse 31, uh, so Peter has just confessed that Jesus is the Christ. And in Mark it says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So as Jesus starts laying out what has to happen to him, Peter jumps in. Peter says, No, that can't happen. The Messiah can't be rejected and killed. He's supposed to bring us freedom from the Romans. He's supposed to start a revolution, and he's supposed to rule in power. And the way Jesus responds is, you're not thinking in the terms of God's plan. You're thinking in the terms of human desire. Because there are, there are hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament that, are point, that point to the coming Messiah. And a lot of these prophecies um, that people held tightly to were prophesying that the Messiah would come and be this mighty, powerful, military leader, ruler. And so people clung to those prophecies because that's the type of Messiah they wanted. They didn't want a weak Messiah. They didn't want a Messiah who was here to be a servant and make himself low. They wanted a Messiah who would start a revolt and would jump them into power. So essentially all those other prophecies that Jesus fulfilled when he was here, the people ignored. And even those closest to Jesus needed to give up their expectations and desires to realize that as the Messiah had come for this first time, it was not the picture that they had in their mind. So like I said before, it might seem like it would take someone highly specialized to be able to accept this call. But do you know who Jesus offers this call to? 
You can shout it out. You can answer. Right in the verse, Jesus says, anyone who would come after me. Anyone. And anyone means everyone. Do you know that this call has been offered to you? That Jesus has offered this to you personally? If you don't know that, then I'd like to introduce you to the truth of the gospel this morning, if that's okay, just to take a little bit of an aside. The gospel, which the gospel just means the good news, the good news of Jesus. And so our need for the gospel or our need for Jesus stems from the fact that we have a sin problem. Paul wrote in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul is saying that we're all sinners. Everyone is created equal, especially when it comes to being a sinner. We're all born with this nature to sin, this nature to be selfish. And our sin causes us to worship and rely on things other than God. Whether that be ourselves, whether that be another person, whether it be money, a job, fill in the blank. We rely on those things and we want those things more than we want God. And God, on the other hand, is holy and righteous and perfect. And he can't tolerate sin. And so, because God can't tolerate sin and because we are naturally born to live in our sin and be controlled by it, Our sin separates us from God. And the ultimate penalty for sin is death and an eternal separation from God. But God doesn't want us to be separated from him. He loves us, he loves you, and he desires a relationship with you. And so Jesus came. Jesus came to earth and he lived a perfect, sinless life, even though he was tempted in every single way that we are tempted every day. But Jesus lived that life without sin. And then Jesus allowed himself to be sacrificed on the cross. And that sacrifice on the cross, the brutality that he went through, the separation from God that he felt on the cross, when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was taking the punishment of God's wrath towards sin for us. And we call this the great exchange. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our sin was applied to Jesus on the cross and he took the punishment for it. And the righteousness and the right standing that belonged to Jesus, that's been given to us. And so our response is to accept this free gift. This free gift that's offered. To accept it, we believe in Jesus and we receive him as our Lord, and we commit and trust our lives to him. 
and follow after him. The worship team can feel free to start to head up. And so if Jesus is new to you, if this is maybe one of your first times in church or, um, or if the gospel is something that's confusing to you, I hope that that makes it a little bit clearer. But if it doesn't, because I'm not going to assume that I'm a clear, really good communicator. If not, and, or if you just want to know more, then don't leave here today. Don't turn off your screen if you're watching online without doing something about it, without talking to someone about it. You can find me, you can find Pastor Ian, or just find someone who looks like they're in charge. Um, <laughs> you could talk to whoever's standing out at the welcome table this morning on your way out, or if you were invited here by a friend, talk to them. Um, you could fill it out on a connection card, even drop it in the bucket or do it online or send us an email. But I would challenge you, if that's something you feel you need to do, then do it today and don't put it off. And if you are someone who has accepted the gift of salvation, as I know many of you here are, then I hope that this just serves as a reminder and as an encouragement that your debt has been fully paid and that the hope of your eternity rests in the hands of your Savior. I hope that this is encouraging and that it reminds you that it's through His power that we can successfully fulfill the call that Jesus gave in Mark 8. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit that lives within us that we can forsake all of the things in pursuit of Christ. It's only through the power of His Spirit that we can deny ourselves. It's only through the power of the Holy Spirit that we can forsake sin. It's only through the power of the Holy Spirit that we can have power over sin. Because we can't do it in our own strength. Our wants are too great and our wills are far too weak. But as we follow Jesus, he lends us the strength through his spirit to follow deeper and become more like him. And so as we get ready to close this morning, I just want to end on three things that I believe Jesus was teaching his disciples in this passage that we can, that we can take away from. The first one being that he was affirming to his disciples that he was the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah, the one true God. Two, that it was necessary for Jesus to take the punishment for our sins so that we could be brought back into right relationship with God. It was necessary. It was the only way that we could have relationship with God. And third, that Jesus made the sacrifice for everyone. And he calls anyone who would to surrender their life and to follow him. And so as we get ready to go from here this week, as we go, let's go in pursuit of him. Would you pray with me one last time before we sing together? Father God, your gospel is so powerful and sweet. 
Lord, that you would look upon us on all of our mess, on all the things that we, that we don't get right, sometimes even intentionally. Lord, that you would look upon us and that you would give your son so that you could have a relationship with us. Lord, thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. The sacrifice that washes us clean. That takes our sin far away from us. So Lord, I pray if there's anyone in this room who doesn't know you, Lord, that they would do something about that today. That they would talk to someone, that they would that they would begin pursuing you with reckless abandon. Lord, that you would help us to forsake all other things in light of pursuing you. Lord, thank you. Lord, would you give us a new heart, strengthening us through your spirit. Lord, that we would look forward to the day when we can see you face to face and dwell with you in eternity forever. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.